Can we stand together, please, for the reading of the gospel? In the Gospel of John and John 15 and 16, these words, When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who comes from the Father, he will testify on my behalf. You also are to testify because you've been with me from the beginning. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. Yet none of you ask, where are you going? But because I said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father and you'll see me no longer. About judgment, because the ruler of this world has been condemned. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason I said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. My grandfather was born in 1878. He died in 1979, 101 years. His first job was driving a horse-drawn coal wagon in Maysville, Kentucky. That's an important part of this understanding because my grandfather never believed that we put a person on the moon. A horse-drawn coal wagon is not about speed, and getting to the moon is all about speed, all about attaining velocity, exceeding the speed of sound, and breaking the bonds of earth. He didn't believe it. He had a small view and a mind not elastic enough to allow in such amazing new facts. Change is hard, especially if we have to change an essential way we think or an essential way that we live. Several years ago now, my mother had come in for a visit, and I was taking her back to Illinois, a three-hour drive from my house to my brother's house. We got up into Indiana, and my mother, who's now well past 80, said, I want to ask you a question. Okay. What do you think about homosexuality? My mother, who's never said the word sex out loud in her life... suddenly wants my opinion. So I thought, well, I have a captive audience. She's not going anywhere. She's going to be right there. 
And so for the next 10 minutes, I detailed for her my journey, my journey from prejudice and ignorance to understanding and acceptance and affirmation. And when I finished, she said, well, I kind of thought you'd say that. And I think I agree with you. And I wondered just how deep this agreement went. And so I said, well, you know, I, I've wondered about, and I named the relative that we have, and she said, before I could even finish the sentence, no, 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 that's not possible. <laughs> yeah, it is, Mom. Change is hard, especially if we have to change the way we think and live and treat others. If we have to accept new understandings and integrate that into how we live. John's gospel is written later than the others. And what appears to be this this discourse of Jesus to disciples who have yet to experience crucifixion and resurrection and uh, the ascension. He's also speaking to people decades later over here, this church, this struggling church. And one of their great struggles was people who, I think I agree with you. But when push comes to shove, they really don't change the way they live, the way they think. They're still following old practices. Change is hard. And John's gospel, while speaking here, is also addressing here. Both of them had similar struggles. How to wrap their minds around this spirit business. This advocate that Jesus says is coming. He says to them, I have more to say, and you're not ready for it yet. For the disciples, these are head-spinning things. Crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. and Who ascends anyway? Well, in their history, Elijah did. And this identifies him with that. But, you know, it's kind of hard to believe things that you see unless you can connect them to something else. There's a science, really, about what our brains will believe. If you take something that you have no other experience for, it's like having a belief and you're going to hang it right there in space with nothing connecting it or supporting it or holding it and expect it to stay there. The brain kind of rebels against that. The brain wants to say, okay, now this is like this experience over here. And so there's a connection here. And so I can understand this now. And we move incrementally. But to get something that's astounding and new, whether it's walking on the moon or whether it's resurrection or whether it's Holy Spirit, is really hard to grasp. And so John tries to put this into words that they'll, they'll understand. The church over here, decades later, they've heard all the things about the coming of the Holy Spirit, the tongues of fire, the great mighty wind, the speaking in tongues. They've heard that. But for them, that's either a distant memory or something they just heard about that's not been their experience. They're a lot like we are. 
The disciples who hear this, they're going to face a whiplash of events. Their heads are going to drop with the killing of Jesus. Their heads are going to be in a swivel with fear. Who's, who's coming after them? They're going to jerk their heads up with the resurrection like nobody saw that coming. Then when he tells them new things, they're scratching their heads about this new understanding. And then their heads must have exploded with the ascension. The early church knew this story about the dramatic wind. They also knew that the cold wind of religious hatred had tamped down the early enthusiasm. And they were into the day-to-day living out of what was hard to believe. When dramatic change occurs, we are afraid and threatened and vulnerable. John's readers were just a small, vulnerable group in a really big world, and they didn't hold the levers of power. And the promise here is that the Spirit will bring new understandings, new understandings about sin and righteousness and judgment, the core of their beliefs is going to change the basic stuff. And he's going to talk to them about more kindness and forgiveness, more mercy and more hope, more redemptive living. The Spirit is going to stretch their minds from this little view to a world that includes love and mercy. We all know that European folk tale, The Beauty and the Beast. about true love surviving false identities and beauty stays with the beast because she sees who he really is underneath that veneer of deception and fear, his frightening visage. And in the Disney version, when beauty and the beast awaken to who they really are, they sing this song to each other, tale as old as time, tune as old as song, Bittersweet and strange, finding you can change, learning you were wrong. When dramatic change comes, there's also the chance for growth. And we find ourselves this day deciding which voices to listen to, which path to follow. And there are a lot of religious voices that are loud in our land one that recently proclaimed that women who are suffering abuse in their relationship with their husband should stay in that relationship as a testimony to their husbands about Jesus. It's a false voice. Or voices that proclaim whatever political power is doing, they twist their theology to bless it. and compromise their own moral commitments in the process. A lot of voices. And here is a word about the Spirit. One who will guide us into all the truth, it says. But he doesn't speak of tongues of fire and mighty winds and doves flying around. 
He speaks about the spirit that brings love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness and self-control. All of these are characteristics of a loving relationship. All of these are about how we treat each other within the boundaries of this church and outside in the community, how we treat the world at large. And it is a radical departure. The Spirit comes. Indeed, the Spirit's here when we see kindness and love and joy and tenderness and mercy. Virginia Woolf wrote in her book, To the Lighthouse, she has the painter Lily Briscoe pondering things, and she says, what's the meaning of life? And that was all, a simple question, one that tended to close in on one with the years. The great revelation had never come. The great revelation perhaps never did come. Instead, there were little daily miracles, illuminations, matches struck unexpectedly in the dark. In the midst of chaos, there, there was shape. In one way or another, we all have some chaos. Sometimes it's worse than others. And we, we, we look for shape, for something of God to hold on to and something of God to be held by. It's important, I think, to remember that these words are addressed to a community of faith. It's important because we're often held by the people of God. A few years back, my older brother called me. We talk often on the phone. He likes to kid and tease and laugh on the phone, but this particular call, he started out, and told me that his daughter was addicted to heroin. He wanted to know what to do. I'm a chaplain who works with the dying. I'm not a chaplain who works with the addicted. I don't really know. But over the next two years, we would have weekly phone conversations. What do I do? How do I save my daughter? And the underlying question was always, what does love look like now? What does love do now? What does love say now? And at one critical point, my brother said to his daughter, nothing will make me stop loving you. But I need you to step up and work hard at this. I didn't think about it much at the time. But now I look back at that and I think about as my older brother was holding on to his daughter, I was holding on to my brother. And you may never have known it, but you were holding on to me. And I believe that's what the Spirit of God does. Whether we name it that way, Whether our theology gets that way, I believe the Spirit creates this connectedness where we hold each other. 
and believe that we're left with the Spirit leading us, questioning us, asking us if how we live breaks down barriers, tears down walls, asking us if we live in ways that bring more joy into the world or more indifference, more joy or more sadness, more peace or hostility. Do we live in ways that multiply patience or do we create anger? Do we live with greater kindness or by greater rudeness? Do we seek understanding or we just give up and live by our prejudices? Do we practice faithfulness or do we multiply betrayal? Do we live out of more truth or do we just accept lies and deception? I think the Spirit of God leaves a lot for us to decide. Pulling, connecting, guiding, and leaving deciding to us. A lot of freedom in that. A lot of responsibility in that. A lot of growth possible in that. The Spirit comes to show us the way to live. Amen. We sing a hymn. It's contained in your worship folder. It's a time of connectedness, a time for most of us just to realize how connected we are and to bless that. A time for others perhaps to say, I want to be more fully connected, and we're here. We stand together to sing, please, God of futures yet unfolding.